there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Freegardencourse.com uh, Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a pro small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy nutritious food with minimal labor, um, use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms, and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill, and help you eat healthy, nutritious food. Um, there's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, you can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. The Organic Gardener podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com forward slash OGP to support the show and see if you qualify. Health IQ customers save between 4 to 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ customers because physically active people have a lower risk of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Learn more and get a free quote at healthiq.com forward slash OGP. Perfect, because uh, I've been saying today's my last day of summer vacation. I have a training wow. tomorrow, and then it's kids, or next week we have training, I think Monday through Thursday, and then kids the Monday after that. Oh, and I'm and I'm here. I am 61, retired from the corporate world, re-entering a new world of garden writing and gardening. And uh, I've paid my dues. 25 years of the corporate world was most did me in. So I'm pretty I'm pretty chilled out about it all right now. <laughs> all right, good for you. Well, our life's been interesting. Like we kind of started out. My husband was practically semi-retired when we got married, and then things have like since we put power and got bills and all this other stuff, and we kind of gone the other route. So, um, uh -huh. we were there, and now it's. Uh, I always say we had a two-year honeymoon, and then his kids came to stay with us one summer and stayed for the school year, and we had to get an alarm clock. Uh -huh. That was uh -huh. 24 years ago, and now we just run, run, run. So anyway. Um, yeah, I've been there, done that. It's, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I viewed the questions quickly and I'm, okay. I am really, I feel like I'm at my best and you just ask the questions and I've got answers to all of those. If not at the tip of my tongue, I like the process of working through the answer. Yep. The gardening is just such a, an integral part of what I do that, um, all of those questions made sense. So awesome. I'm ready for them. I love that. But I, on the other hand, even though you're episode 209, so I've done over 209 <laughs> interviews now, Yay. I still get nervous as soon as I get away from my script. So uh, my <laughs> listeners tell me, don't be so stuck to your script. But So I'll, I'll do my best to try to wing it. So sure. I like that, though. I put out two episodes now. I call them raw episodes because the, just the content was so key. I wanted my listeners to hear it before, and like editing takes a long time. That being oh, yeah. said, I do always tell everybody um, it's really easy to edit. And then, you know. Oh, we're good. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to know because one of my next goals is to um, do my own gardening podcast and some Excellent. webinars. So, you know, it, I've, I've, the book's only been out two and a half years. So I'm still so relatively new at all of this that I popping into my head and I feel like. Um, what I'm supposed to do will come to me when I'm supposed to do it. And I just want to have fun with it. And, uh, you know, educating, coaching, reaching gardeners, that's kind of what I feel like my mission is, is getting everybody to grow something. So, um, you know, to, and why not start with tomatoes? I love that. And when you're ready to get your podcast going, if you have any questions or need any help, don't hesitate to ask me or reach out. I've done plenty Great. of practice interviews with people because... When I started, people did that for me. I mean, I love Podcasters Paradise. I joined John Lee Dumas's um, group to learn how to podcast, and I still get tons of benefit from the Facebook group, from 
there. I just Great. went back through because his thing is like, uh, what is it? Um, something or treat, grow, and monetize your podcast. So I just went back and went yeah. through like the growing and monetizing parts, and I'm always learning mm -hmm. and. It's a great group, so. Um, yeah, my daughter bought me the Paul Colligan book, and I've read through that. And uh, she's she's worked with some people on podcasts. She lives up in uh, near Seattle, and I'm here in Raleigh. But she's going to start doing a little bit of work for me. She did my website for me, and she's helped me with Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff and blogging. So yeah, it's uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks. I'm the old dog, and I'm learning some new tricks. So you know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you know what worked? So I'm, I just turned 50, but my husband's 14 years older than I am. So he's 64 uh -huh. already. And I struggled with like, I got him an iPhone and then I got him a Kindle and then I got him a little um, laptop and then I got him a MacBook and I've gotten him so many things. The only thing that's really worked for him is this iPhone 6. When I went to Paris last year, we both got new iPhones and that's been it. So my recommendation for old dogs is make sure you get the technology that works for you and try different things. Yep. But he loved that iPhone six has like changed his life. Like he's made friends on Facebook with like these people over in standing rock. And I think it's so funny when I look at his feed compared to my news feed and how different they are. And, yeah. Um, but definitely, Well, I'll tell you, I, I have really had to, when my book came out, the first thing my daughter told me was, careful with the political stuff because gardeners come from all shapes and sizes. So I, I kind of now have my um, political blogs that I kind of play around on and I've tried so hard to keep my Facebook feeds. Although my real affiliate, especially with what's going on now, um, I can't help but let my really feel my real feelings leak out now and then I just, have to, it's a, t it's a time to be pretty passionate. I find right now. You know, it really is. And I've been blessed with my podcast. And it seems like when I've looked like I've had some time this summer to go through the downloads, they are pretty interested in the political, yeah. like, you know, those things. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I have yep. to watch my P's and Q's at work a little more. Although fortunately, I work on a reservation and it's pretty liberal over there compared to where I am in Good. most of Montana. So. And that's the other thing. Yeah. I've been loving my Facebook feed, which I definitely have people from all different types of life. But yep. for the most part, like I just feel inspired after what's happened in some ways by what people are posting on Facebook and helps everybody else is. So. Oh yeah. That yeah. Well, work. I've been I've been one of the moderators on Democratic Underground going back now since about 2004. So I get to really let my stripes fly there. <laughs> that way, I can kind of let it out there. But yeah, I've. The courage being shown, um, this is the time for good people to take a strong stand. Stand. We're, we're at a true crossroads right now in the country, and uh, things can go either of a couple of ways. One of them is pretty ugly. So I, I always have hope, you know, but this is the first time in my 61 years I've been a little worried about some of the stuff I'm really worried about some of the stuff I'm seeing. Um, human beings, we, we, we do have faults, and man, <laughs> there's a lot of them being shown right now. Yeah, it's crazy. My husband and my stepdaughter are watching the news on the... So, listeners, it's August 16th, and so just like we're right in this crazy thing where they just had that big thing down in Virginia over the statues, if yeah. you're wondering what we're talking yeah. about. So, um, yeah. anyway, I'm kind of glad I have this recording going. I probably will cut into it because I haven't actually even introduced you, but I might put some of these parts up there. But uh, Sure. We talked about that. I don't know. Maybe I'll just introduce you and we'll just go from there. Sure. Let's okay. go. So welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. I am super thrilled. As I said, it's August 16th. This is my third interview this morning on my last day before I go back to training <laughs> and then kids and school. And you all know how that went last spring. So, um, but I have... I interviewed somebody the other day who recommended this book, Epic Tomatoes, and I reached out to the author, and he is here with me already. So I'll quit talking, and welcome to the show, Craig Lahoulier. I didn't even ask you how to say Craig Lahoulier, yes. Lahoulier is, it can be Lahoulier, it can be Lahoulier, but thank you so much for the opportunity to, to join you in gardening. This is great. Well, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. You said you're in the South, in South Carolina. Where did you say? The Carolinas? Uh, yep, live in North Carolina. We've lived here 25 years um, prior to 
so I'm native native New Englander, and in Rhode Island, where I is where my dad and my grandfather actually instilled the love of gardening in me when I was really really young. So uh, I didn't do much gardening in Rhode Island. That's where I kind of grew up. But then I met my wife when I was in graduate school in New Hampshire, and the first thing we did, 1981, the summer after our marriage, is have our first garden and. So it's night that was 81. This is 2017. That means I've had a lot of gardens in my life. Uh, what is this? 36th or 37th garden that we've had this year. And I just can't be without it. Um, uh, I guess I major in tomatoes and minor in peppers and eggplant, but I truly love to grow everything and find that gardening in Raleigh, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina is the most challenging climate that I've gardened in. Um, I didn't realize how we had it the eight years we lived in Pennsylvania, where it seems like no matter what you threw in the ground, it thrived and didn't get diseased. It's a different story here. So that's kind of, I guess that's kind of how I got here on your show is I like to dig in the dirt, get my hands dirty and grow stuff. Okay, sorry, just got to back up just a hair. Where in Pennsylvania, if listeners are looking for land and thinking about, you know, buying a place, <laughs> should they be looking that you can just throw stuff in the ground? Well, and like you, after Eastern, this was... a big state. It's as big as Montana. It is. It is. Um, so we lived in, uh, we started off in Villanova, moved to Berwyn, and then moved to Westchester. So it's all kind of suburban, Delphia, west of Philly, uh, not terribly far from Lancaster. And the ground there is was very rich and it drained nicely. But one of the advantages was we also lived near where they grew, where they produced a lot of mushrooms. So the ability to have drive up to your house with a truckload of 32 cubic yards of mushroom soil and work that into your garden by the time we moved out of uh, Westchester, where we grew some, and that really is, it, I guess I'd have to say in Pennsylvania is where I caught the heirloom gardening bug, and that's where my uh, tomato collection just started exploding. But to be able to go out into a garden and jam your fist into the ground and go up to your shoulder is in direct opposite to when we moved down here to Raleigh and every shovel full of produced a clay pot or a brick and uh, try to bang my hand into the ground down here, I'd break my wrist. It's just, you know, it, it's where you live. Um, and we have to deal with the red clay soil here. I've actually, something else we can touch on if you want to today. I've, the, the trees have grown where I used to have my garden and now I've developed an expertise in container and straw bale gardening. So, you know, it, it's it's been interesting to really dig into the heirlooms and focus on the tomatoes, but then because of necessity, move towards uh, a portable garden, being being able to put a really good garden and grow a lot of food wherever the sun shines in your, in your yard. And there's lots of different ways to do that. Is that your next book? I've got my second book is out. It's Growing Vegetables and Straw Bales, just uh, a little story basics book. And I've got books three and four in my head in planning. Um, one will be on the dwarf tomato breeding project that I've led for a co-led actually for about the last 11 years. And we've been focusing on creating new varieties of compact growing tomatoes. The plants are compact, but the tomatoes are often full sized. Um, and we do it the old fashioned way through just Mendelian breeding, doing crosses and selecting and I've involved maybe 350 people all over the world in that. And, uh, you know, then I want to do, my wife and I want to do a gardening cookbook and we'll probably self-publish both of those just so I can practice what that's like. But I like to write. I like to blog. Um, I love to teach and coach and learn from other people and just, you know, there's no end to what we can learn with gardening. And um, really when we learn best is when we screw something up or something goes wrong and then we figure out how to fix it. And then we share that with people and we all float the boat together and get better as gardeners together. Oh my goodness. I love all of this. I have so many questions. I'm not even sure where to start. Jump so, in anywhere. <laughs> um, I guess, well, 
So Mike just started the straw bale thing, but I'm kind of curious about the containers. So, uh, well, do we even like? Did we talk about your book? Is called Epic Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. So where Epic Tomato? Yeah. So where Epic Tomatoes came from is out of a. Uh, you know, sometimes we pick things to love in life, uh, our significant other or our pets. And I think every now and then something chooses us to become obsessed with. And through a period of time, maybe between 1986 and 1990, I received so many tomato, valuable, rare family tomato seeds from people all over the country many of which it was just that family and I that then had the variety. So I, I got, I get to actually receive Cherokee purple back in 1990 from a fellow in Tennessee and that the tomato had no name. So I get to grow it and look at it and marvel at that unique color because no tomato of that color had been seen up at, by 1990. And, uh, you know, Anna Russian, Lillian's yellow heirloom, all of these varieties that I get to, slap names on or distribute by listing them in the seed savers exchange by sending them to friends and seed companies so that they would be in seed catalogs. So I I've, I'm very lucky that I've probably had a hand in introducing or reintroducing a couple of hundred different tomatoes into seed catalogs and availability. So kind of turning back the clock, um, finding things our great grandfathers and grandmothers and may have grown sitting in a um, gene bank somewhere never being looked at any I dug them out and grew them and got them back in seed companies hands so um you know that that all kind of took hold um my collection of tomato varieties now is well over 3000 and um I've been the seed saver exchange out in Decorah Iowa I've been their tomato advisor probably for I don't know two or three decades now and uh, it's so much fun because if they've got some questions on tomato histories and things, they'll they'll contact me and I'll help answer them. So I'm very lucky that the tomato decided that I'm kind of someone who could help them uh, spread their wings and, and get out there and get a lot more varieties into people's hands. Holy cow. How did you get to be a tomato advisor? Like you just started sending seeds in and they realized that you like knew all like how did, what was your corporate job like tomato grower like <laughs> so so my phd is in home? my phd is in organic chemistry so i was actually in pharmaceutical companies for a while doing that and then um the gardening thing developed in parallel to that and uh so i've always had the passion for gardening so I'd work during the day and then do the gardening when I came home from work. Um, I, I love stories. I love genealogy. I love food. I love to cook. I love the diversity of things. I, like, I love the idea of saving seeds and passing them on. So in a way, the tomato hobby became kind of a perfect intersection or a perfect storm of me being able to rope all of my little passions into one pursuit. And um, I think what happened is with the Seed Savers Exchange is I became clearly one of their main um, tomato uh, collectors and disseminators. So I was listed in their yearbook, uh, offering hundreds of varieties of tomatoes for many years. And, um, you know, I got to know them a little bit, went out to one of the campouts in Iowa. And I think they are a great organization that recognizes and values and uses expertise and you can pick any crop, tomatoes, potatoes, melons, beans, and there would be a number of people involved with the Seed Savers organization that would develop an expertise around that. And that became the advisory network of people that would learn about that. So, you know, I guess it's kind of odd if I take a step back and a lot of times my friends will ask me why tomatoes, why did, where did this obsession come from? But I think all of us, if we look at our lives, we'll find that there's something that we really love and have a passion for we can't seem to learn enough about. And uh, for me, it just happens to be tomato varieties. 
Okay, fascinating. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like, so my passion is like biographies. Like, I just love learning about people's lives. So, my mm -hmm. question for you as the tomato expert is what's one thing, and I'm just taking this straight from John Lee Dumas, the guy who taught me how to podcast. What's one thing that we as tomato growers probably should know, but maybe don't know, that'll make us more successful as tomato growers? Yeah. Oh, wow. There's so many options, but uh, I'm, so let's give you kind of a top three. So I, I was, uh, I was fortunate to be at, um, speaking at Monticello at their harvest festival a few years ago. And one of the talks they asked me to give are five must do's for successful tomato growers, but I'll cut that down really to, to just a couple. And I think, um, the first would be the amount of potential fungi and diseases and things that live in what we grow our plants in. Uh, you know, it could be garden soil, but it teems everywhere. And a lot of the trouble with people, a lot of the people that trouble that people run into growing their tomatoes is starting low down in the plant. The foliage starts getting spots, brown spots, yellow spots. The foliage starts dying off and it works itself up the plant. So I think mulching immediately, and it can be untreated grass clippings. It can be um, hardwood, uh, fine hardwood bark. It, it can be wheat straw, as long as you make sure that it's not been sprayed with persistent herbicides. And, it, you know, it, I'll, I'll take a pause here to say, isn't it a shame now that when we talk about using straw bales or we talk about using lawn clippings, we have to now put that caveat in because there's so much use of Roundup and herbicides and you can be the greatest gardener in the world and have the greatest dirt in the world. But if you use a mulch or if you use a straw bale and it's been impregnated with a persistent herbicide, your plants are going to die. So that you need to know the source of your materials and you need to be able to trust that they haven't been sprayed with stuff. Um, but if you mulch, if you create a barrier so that soil doesn't splash on the lower foliage, number two then will fit in if you space your plants so that they get really good air circulation around the plants and between the plants and the sun can shine as much all around the plant as you can, especially in areas where it gets warm and humid you can really alleviate or minimize a lot of the things that attack your tomato plants. Um, and, you know, anybody who gardens, all of us know that we have this enthusiasm of trying to grow as much as possible in a given space. And so we pack things in. When they're small, they look like they've got all kinds of space. <laughs> when they reach mature size, all of a sudden your garden is a jungle that you can't even... And... For, for the most part, most things that we grow like that type of crowding because there are so many different types of fungi, particularly. There are viruses and bacteria as well, but it's usually either to the bad actors on tomato plants. I think the third thing would be, you know, if we gardened in the 1940s and 50s, seed catalogs had a total of maybe 150 or less tomatoes available to grow and 90% of them were red and you can find a few pinks and you can find maybe a yellow and the flavors were kind of good, very good or okay. But here we are in 2017 and because of efforts like the seed savers exchange to help us maintain our genetic heritage because of all the great smaller seed companies that are emerging, that are really concerned about seed saving and heirlooms, we can grow 10,000 or more different tomato varieties now if if we're a member of the Seed Savers Exchange and we get their huge yearbook every year. So stretch stretch your imagination, stretch your palate, try something fun, grow a heart-shaped tomato or one the size of a pea or one the size of a softball, you know, grow a purple one or a striped one or a swirled one. Um, it's, I, you could almost say, learn to play with your food because when you've got all these different colors, that's what you feel like doing is playing, putting them on your plate in different arrangements and try, let's make white tomato sauce. Let's make green tomato sauce. Let's make yellow tomato sauce. But through that, people are going to ask you what varieties you're using. And if you know the stories in history, you know, you were saying that you like biographies. Well, I, I like the biography of these things that we grow because 
tomato varieties have stories often, pepper varieties may have stories, melon varieties. If our goals, all of us who are involved with this wonderful thing called gardening, one of our goals is to get everyone growing something and understanding where their food comes from. Being able to tell them an interesting story about the tomato you used to make that yellow tomato sauce, and it made a Lillian's yellow heirloom, and it may have been sent to this guy, Craig LaHoulier, by Lillian, by Robert Richardson, and he got it from Lillian Bruce. And Lillian Bruce in the sea was an elderly woman who got the seeds from her sons who used to go to farm shows and find interesting tomatoes to bring back to her to save seeds from. You know, that's that's a heck of a lot more interesting than just saying, well, you know, this tomato is just a common hybrid that I bought at the local store and I don't really know anything about it except that it tastes pretty good. Um, so sorry, I covered about 15 topics in that one run-on sentence. <laughs> you are awesome. I know my listeners are loving this as much as I am. I mean, that's what makes my show is the stories of these amazing people. And like you knew, I want to know, who's Lillian? Is Lillian your daughter? I guess she's not your daughter. <laughs> no, Lillian Bruce is a woman who lived in, um, I believe it was Manchester, Tennessee. I'd have to look that up, but. Back in 1990, this fellow Seed Saver Exchange member, Robert Richardson, he's passed on now. He lived in New York. He knew I loved tomatoes, and he sent me seeds of this unnamed yellow tomato and the and the writing, this woman, Lillian Bruce's handwriting, where she just called it Lillian's number one. And uh, he didn't know much about it, but I grew it. It's a potato leaf variety, meaning its foliage doesn't have toothy edges on the leaves. It has uh, smooth edges, which look a little like a potato plant. It's about a one and a one and a half pound tomato. It's bright canary yellow. And of the, let's say if I've grown a couple of thousand, 3,000 different tomatoes in my life and tasted them, Lillian's yellow is one of my desert top three. You know, if somebody said, Craig, you can only bring three tomatoes with you to go live somewhere for a year, I'd bring that with me. And uh, But we, I don't know much about Lillian Bruce, except she was a woman who had sons who loved her enough that they brought her all these cool tomatoes from country fairs and farm shows. And this is one she clearly loved. And, uh, and you know, she's gone. Who knows? Maybe the sons are gone. Mr. Richardson's gone. But I'm still here. And now I grew her tomato and saved lots of seed and get it out there. And seed companies are now selling it. And, uh, you know, people who know the right company, you know, Victory Seeds out in Oregon, Tomato Grower Supply, they'll be able to order some of these Lillian's yellows and themselves and uh, be amazed at how delicious a yellow tomato can taste to the point where it may may become their favorite tomato ever. Maybe. <laughs> I love this. And so I, I'm going to try not to lose my train of thought. The two big questions I wanted to talk about is like, the ease of like so at our some seed saving thing i went to i learned how easy it is to save tomato seeds maybe listeners haven't done that but are like tomato seeds easier to like you talked about other vegetables you like to grow like is there like a top five of easy seeds to save compared to other ones that maybe are harder to save yeah i, I well i think the easiest um seeds to save of all are the ones where you simply let the um, vegetable or fruit um, essentially dry on the vine or get very close, and then the seeds in them mature. And I think of beans or peas or even peppers, where it's as simple, you know, you let your beans dry in the plant and you pluck them and you open them up and put them on a paper plate, let them dry a little more, and there's your bean seeds for next year. Peppers, you just, you got to let the pepper go to whatever ripe color it's going to get to. So uh, with the exception of, I think, one variety called permagreen, all green peppers are on their way to a different color. Sometimes that color is yellow, sometimes it's orange, sometimes it's chocolate, sometimes it's red. But once it hits that final color, then you can just cut the pepper open and crinkle the seeds onto a paper plate and let them air dry for a week or so, and then you've got your seeds. Tomatoes um, I'd say next in line would be something like eggplant where you have to let the eggplant go golden yellow. So just like a pepper, an eggplant that's pink or white or purple is on its way to the color yellow. It's just most people don't let them sit on the plant till they get there. 
when they turn that yellow color, that's when the seeds are actually going to be okay for saving because that means they'll germinate the next year. You just cut your yellow eggplant open and I like to put chunks of it under the water and work the flesh with my fingers and the seeds come out and they sink and then you just dry them. You can do that to tomatoes and a lot of people do something no more complicated than getting a tomato they like to eat, squeezing some of the seeds on a piece of newspaper or a paper plate or a napkin and letting the mirror dry and then peeling them off and putting them in an envelope to store for the next few years. I like to ferment my tomato seed because there, there are thoughts that the fermentation process will help um, destroy some of the seed-borne diseases that may be on the seed if your plant did have some kind of a fungal disease. But it's easy. It's cutting the tomato in half and squeezing the goop into a cup. Uh, I like to put it out on my front porch and cover it with a paper towel, give it two or three days, a white fungus layer forms. That means the gel surrounding the seeds has broken down meaning if you forget it and leave it a week, you will have a cup of little tomato. So you really have to limit the time to just a couple of days when it's warm weather. And then add water to the cup and stir it around. And the, the goopy stuff you don't want to keep, you can pour that off and all the good seeds sink and put it through a sieve, scrape them on a plate. And here's, here's an interesting thing when we're talking about seed saving is each type of vegetable or fruit as a seed that have particular durations where they will stay good to grow the next year, tomatoes just happen to last for 10 or 12 or 14 years, right? Just putting, putting them in an envelope and leaving them in your, in your bedroom closet or somewhere. Um, you want to, you don't, you is an enemy of seeds, but you know, where bean seeds may last only three to five years and pepper seeds may last only three to five years, tomatoes last at least 10 years. So that means um, you know, if you buy some, keep them because you can grow those for quite a while. If you save your own, you've got a lot of seeds to share with people for many, many years. So a little bit of information there about seed saving. And uh, I, there, none of the, uh, the hardest ones would be things like lettuce and biennials maybe where you have to let them, uh, you know, go to seed later in the year. And then the seeds are small and you have to winnow them and, and get the chaff off them and things like that. But um Tomato seeds are kind of fun. They don't smell good when they're fermenting, so you certainly don't want to do that fermentation process in the house where uh, I, I think the smell of tomatoes is worse than if you're making kimchi or some stinky dish. It's, it's pretty rough. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Oh, sorry. Um, where's my pins? Uh, my other question is... Nobody's talked about Seed Savers Exchange. You know, and I kind of, but do you want to just like briefly touch on like what is Seed Savers Exchange? Is it something you have to join or their membership dues? Can anybody join it or? Yeah. Um, Seed Savers Exchange is to me the foundational organization it's, that its formation back in 1975 is almost solely responsible for the fact that heirlooms have become something lots of people can now buy as seeds. And the fact that so much of our genetic heritage has been saved and maintained. So how they came about was it, the first uh, hybrid tomato was Big Boy. And that came out in 1949. And, you know, there's a few things about hybrids. Number one, I think, is that they often will create some additional vigor in certain crops and you can breed in disease resistance. So specialty growers like farmers can breed some um, traits in like ability to be machine harvested and things like that. But they became popular also because you can't, hybrids can never be heirlooms because if you save seed from a hybrid variety, it segregates back into the parents and variations in between. So I think seed companies thought this is pretty profitable to sell hybrids because that will ensure that people come back to us each year to buy the same hybrids. Because of that very little effort went into old-fashioned plant breeding, and therefore less of them were sold in catalogs, and our genetic heritage started vanishing. Um, 
For a non-hybrid variety, an heirloom or a pollinated variety, unless you're growing it out regularly and saving seeds from it and keeping it going, it can become extinct. So in 1975, this fellow and I, um, and his wife Diane, uh, had this idea that losing our genetic heritage at an alarming rate and something has to be done. So he thought, you know, there are people spread in little rural areas all over the country that may have varieties that have originated only in their yard or were brought over by a particular family from Europe or elsewhere and family treasure for years, but then they become elderly or mice get into the root cellar and eat the seeds or they forget to grow them and they lose their germination. So he thought, let's form a collective collaborative group where we list what we have in our names and addresses. And then if people are interested, we'll share them a sample of seed and they'll grow them and save seed. The more people that grow it, you're removing the risk of it becoming extinct. So that was 1975, and they started with this little pamphlet, about a dozen people. And here we are in 2017, where they've been around now for 42 years. They've had thousands and thousands of members. If you join, and there are annual dues, or you can become a lifetime member, but it's a tax-deductible organization, and that allows you to order from thousands and thousands and thousands varieties of everything, peas, watermelon, cantaloupes, uh, apple scions, tomatoes, peppers, herbs, all being offered by other gardeners and other members. So the Seed Savers Exchange themselves really don't get in involved in the specific exchange, but they provide the directory in the information for gardeners who are members to be able to share seeds back and forth. And that's at one point I was offering over 500 different varieties of tomatoes through that exchange. And right now there's a fellow in, um, let's see, where does Bill live? Wisconsin, who's probably offering a thousand different types of tomatoes. So it's a wonderful situation. It's, it is, you know, we would be growing only 50 tomatoes today. We would have hundreds of varieties having gone extinct if it wasn't for the brainstorm of Kent and Diane back in 1975 to start this. And it is a thriving organization that's centered in Decorah, Iowa. They have a camp out every year. They're run and staffed by the nicest people in the world. Um, so I'm just a strong supporter of them as one of the most important botanical organizations that we have in the world right now. Wow. Who knew? Uh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Well, and like, it's almost like it like reminds me of like the original Facebook way back then, back in 1975. That guy was a real visionary. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But that's what it takes to move society forward is you have lots of people that just have to do what's in front of them. You know, they, they do their daily job, they raise their family, but then every now and then you get people sprinkled all over the world that have these wonderful ideas. And these ideas, if they're acted upon, are the things that help us move forward and progress. Or in this case, they help us to maintain something that can never be replaced, which are living beings. These, these little seeds, these packets of varieties that can never be replicated, that once they're gone, they're gone. You know, you look, we, we, we bird watch and we think, oh, it would, it's a shame to think that the ivory-billed woodpecker could be extinct. Or it makes me sad to think the passenger pigeon is extinct. Well... You know, we would be talking about hundreds of varieties of tomatoes and peas and beans that would be extinct if not for the formation and continued relevance of that organization. So if it sounds like I have a high regard for them, well, good. That's that's, that's the way I want to sound. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. Uh, oh, dang, I forgot. Tell listeners about the Epic Tomato Book. Sure. So um, I've been heavily involved in tomatoes for a long time. And I'm, I love to garden and I share plants with people and I just love to share information. And my wife had been on me for years. You've got lots of information. It's time for you to write your book. But I had my job, my day job, and I was raising, you know, raising our family. And I said, well, I'll know when the right time is to write the book. And hopefully, 
there'll be some publisher somewhere that will catch wind of me and I'll be contacted and we'll see how it works because a, a book as I've learned um, is a big effort. It's you're reaching into your brain and you're pulling out information. You're doing research. You're spending a lot of time on the laptop, which is how I wrote mine. So for a few years, I, I've been friends with somebody in um, Nova Scotia named Nikki DeBoer, who's written a few books and she has a wonderful um, weekend gardening show on the radio there. And she wanted someone to come on and talk tomatoes. So I've been, making appearances each year on her show and her publisher is story. And I guess story asked Nikki about, you know, they wanted to have a tomato book in their portfolio. And Nikki said, have you thought about asking Craig? So one day I get a call from Nikki's editor, Carlene saying, we'd like you to write a tomato book for us. And that was in 2012. And I was absolutely delighted and jumped on that. And, um, you know, I guess, as they say, the rest is history. So they signed me to a contract. And what Epic Tomatoes represents is everything that I have learned about or love about or um, wanted to teach people about tomatoes right from history through varieties and colors and flavors um, and a lot of history and stories through every technique that I have found that works well and even doing the research to get information on those that I haven't tried personally, but, but find that they're recommendable culture, diseases, troubleshooting, some of the urban legends around gardening and doing a little busting, um, and then right into some recipes that I love, how to preserve, how to save seeds into lists of my favorite varieties and some of the studies that I've done through the years to learn more about this. So it's, you know, it's 90,000 words that essentially sucked my brain dry of every little element of tomato knowledge that I had up to that time. It's a labor of love. It describes hopefully well, um, not only what I do, but why. And But what I wanted to capture, and only the readers can tell me if I've succeeded, is I wanted to take people through a walk on a walk through my garden and just talk tomatoes with them because it's my first book. I didn't know I knew how to write. I have never written a book before. So it was a shot in the dark for me. I just kind of sat down with a laptop and started typing and let it all come out. And, you know, they sent photographers to my house for two summers and took pictures of everything I was growing and everything I was doing. And lo and behold, December of 2000. 14, a package arrived in my front porch and I got to see for the first time what they did to my words. So a great publisher actually takes the words of a writer and wraps it in nice graphics and puts in the nice pictures. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, um, it's a moment I'll never, never forget because any, anybody who writes only gets to write their first book once. And then once that book comes out, they only get to experience the aftermath of their fir first book once. So I've actually kept a handwritten diary for the last two and a half years. What it's felt like, uh, you know, what it felt like to write it, what it's felt like afterwards, the good days, the bad days, the anxieties about speaking, the questions I'll get asked. Uh, will people show up to this event? Um, you know, all, all of these things, and hopefully someday I can share that either in a blog or in a book because it's a unique experience and a very, it's a very vulnerable experience to put yourself out there because now with the internet, when you write something and it's out there, it can be critiqued and people can go on and tell you what they think of it. So it's been a, a humbling experience. It's been a test of self-confidence. But mostly, I think what what I've wanted it to be is, is just a test of continuing humility, and that I feel nothing but thankful that I've gotten the hobby, but nothing more than wanting to continue to share what I love about this with people and always learn more myself, and just be the same guy that goes out and gets his hands dirty in gardens and screws up on this and that every year and learns more. So, um, you know, nothing's changed except. Uh, the story of my hobby is kind of out there and then I can just kind of say, okay, well it's out there. Now I want to go out and speak to gardening groups and do podcasts like this and reach people and 
get emails from people and help them troubleshoot their problems. And it's, I just feel very fortunate. That's maybe the way to encapsulate it is um, it's been a, a really wonderful, uh, fulfilling, enjoyable experience completely right along the line. Well, I think that was one of the things that was recommended about your book was the full color photos. I love all of this. I'm dying to read your diary. <laughs> Maybe if you decide to make it an audio book, I could read it out loud for you on the audio part thing. Um, I, I'm going to tell you a funny story about that. So, you know, okay. I when the book came out, I... I said to my wife just jokingly, uh, because we've gotten into, we, you know, we turned the TV off eight years ago and we, we don't really get the newspaper anymore. So we, we kind of live in the reality. We love music and we, we, we like to read to each other and we do books and I, and we listen to a lot of audio books. And I, I said as a joke, well, now I can put Epic Tomatoes out as an audio book. <laughs> we just kind of laughed. But then I was at a friend's house for dinner the other night and I just kind of made it as a joke. And she's like, why not? Um, maybe people would enjoy, you know, driving in the car and learning about gardening. And why does it have to be fiction that's audiobook? So it's it's kind of a kooky thought, but in a way, it would be kind of fun to um, to read a gardening book and have it be an audiobook and be able to like add little tidbits in here and there. So I don't know. I'm just I'm thinking out loud, but it just uh, you know, no, they say that's fun. the best to have an audiobook read by the author themselves because then they put these little huh. extra things in there, you know, and you can kind of huh. like go out and that makes the audiobook more valuable. And huh. on that note, so I've been, you know, I've been doing this podcast for two and a half years and I've been trying to figure out, you know, what kind of course could Mike and I, and then I came across this book called Homegrown Humus that this girl wrote and I couldn't get her she's too shy to come on my podcast and it's all about growing cover crops but it's really short and so yeah I finally was like you know what maybe I could do a class on her book so I put this up uh -huh. and people are responding like crazy so yesterday I actually read her book into my computer as an audiobook and I'm going to send her the file huh. she wants to throw up because I wanted to see how long is it going to like I'm trying to plan these classes now you know, because we're yeah. going to do this like study group thing about the book. And I wanted to see how long does it take to actually read the book. And it took me like just about an, just over an hour to read her entire book. Now, her book is oh. very short. It's only 95 pages. But I definitely think there is a case for people. I love to like people who listen to podcasts. People are loving it. I never thought people would. I was like a gardening podcast. Well, people even. And yeah. I thought when we started this, it'd be my husband teaching it. But. People do. People listen to the garden when they're doing that boring weeding job or riding their lawnmowers yeah. or, you know, they're out there yeah. and they do or, you know, you can listen. So I would definitely encourage well, very you interesting. to do that. Yeah. Huh. Good. Okay. You get, well, you know, I, I, I am a person who has, I'm a list keeper and I do a better job um, adding things to the list than ticking them off. So, okay, we'll just add this to the list. It's uh, to go alongside the podcast and the webinars and books three and four and, uh, you know, some of my list today is water the garden, save the tomato seeds, uh, <laughs> make dinner for my wife who's on the couch post knee surgery. So it's, uh, I, you know, I put the no brainers on the list every day so I can tick the guaranteed ones off. It's, it's getting to the ones that take some time. Sometimes they, they keep sinking down in the, in the priority list. I hear ya. I know. I'm always like, why would anybody stare at a white page? Like, you don't have 20 other thousand things that are, like, waiting to get done. Now, granted, I have 13 children's books, in, and only two of them are completely finished, and 13 others in various uh -huh. stages. But then I always feel like what you said. I don't want to have it really all the way done because then a publisher is going to be like, no, we want to change this, and we want to change that. So... Yep. I don't know. And I'm yep. always like, for me, it's usually summer vacation, try to get a book done, get as much of it as I can. What I need to do is submit, submit, submit. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I found, I find that I can actually write very fast in short bursts. So um, I, I like to do lots of different things in the course of a day. So my wife's a quilter. She's just a wonderful quilter she's an introvert. She, she can come up here in her quilting room and spend hours and I need to do something. And then 30 minutes later, switch and do something and then 30 minutes later, switch. So that's kind of the other way I wrote Epic Tomatoes was I'd sit for an hour, but I can touch type 2000 words a minute on the laptop. So I, I was doing it in these little short bursts what? and, uh, yeah, no <laughs> I can, 
Yeah, I I'm, I can I type about 130 words uh, a minute. So oh, okay, you said 2,000 so words just, a minute, and I was yeah, like, yeah, an hour, what? an hour, yeah, an, okay. an hour. So I was getting about 2,000 words. 2, a minute words. is still fast. I'm yeah. lucky if I can type 60 yeah. words a minute. You should be doing my show notes. Jokes. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it, it helps a lot. And the best course I ever took in school was being in junior high because it helped me through work. It helped it helped me definitely in writing um, because, it, you know, usually that we do think in these fat, fast bursts. And if our fingers can kind of keep up with what our brain is generating, we can get a lot of stuff down pretty quickly. My hard part was the editing. So, yes. you know, if I do emails, if I do blogs, if I do anything, I type it and it's gone. I I don't like to edit and proof and my daughters and my wife were so, and some of my friends. So I, I enlisted quite a few helpers to help me with the proofreading editing process because it was just something that I found really tough to do myself. It is. And then getting them to do, to help you, I think kudos to them because most of the time I'll show like, I can show my mom or my brother or my husband or some of my kids my resume and be like, do you see any things? And they'll be like, no. And then I print it. And then I'm like, look, there's a period missing here. Look, there's no space here. Look, <laughs> you know, the date's wrong or there's no date or this is spelled wrong. Like, you know, you can never proof yeah. your own stuff. So getting somebody in those, it's like, very oh, yeah, hard. It's fine. It's super hard. Or even my like books yeah. that I've written. Before we get to the root of things, we're going to take a moment to thank our sponsors, my good friend, Dacia Daly from Simply Josephine. It's all about handcrafted soaps and apron love here at Simply Josephine. Located in Montana's beautiful Tobacco Valley, I create everything from my home studio. Currently, I offer six different kinds of handmade soaps, three different salves, using wildcrafted plant medicine from right here in our beautiful valley. In addition to my body care products, I also make several styles of aprons. Everything is available at simplyjosephine.com. We want to share a little love with the Organic Gardener podcast listeners. We're offering 15% off. Use code OGP15 at checkout. Thanks and have a beautiful day. Simplyjosephine.com. The Organic Gardener podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com forward slash OGP for Organic Gardener podcast to support the show and see if you qualify. Over half of Health IQ customers save between 4 to 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ customers because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, a 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people just like you, green future growers. Like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash OGP or mention the promo code OGP when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Quickly go through some quick questions here. This is what I call getting to the root of things. So what's your least, do you have like a least favorite activity? What like do you have to force yourself to get out there and do? (sighs) Yes, the least favorite activity for me would have to be the, um, gardening right now, for example, it's mid August. My plants are still alive, but they're not looking great. When I, when I go out to garden, it's like today, it's 92 degrees. The heat index is 105. I know that my plants need something. Um, so it's maximizing the garden because I'm finding the enthusiasm to go out and do things when it's hot and I'm really tired and sometimes tired of it. So we've already put up 20 quarts of tomatoes. We've frozen lots of bags. If I were to go out and remove all the disease foliage and tie the plants up and feed them heavily, we'll get another big crop and I will get to it. But, um, that's probably the hard part for me is, is, um, I've never been a good 12 month gardener because I put so much into it beginning February, seed starting March, April, May, you get into planting June, July. I use September, October, November, December for, chilling out, thinking back, 
thinking what worked, what didn't work, the blogging, the writing. So um, that's why we don't typically have a really good, you know, lots of stuff growing all year round. I just burn myself out. You are so eloquent. I love all of that. All right. So on the flip <laughs> side, what's your favorite activity? Is it eating and harvesting or am I going to be surprised? You know, I'll tell you. So here, here's the thing, and I, I like to tell people this, that I think the people that love gardening the most learn to appreciate the journey um, rather than just being focused on the destination. And what I mean is, so I've got 98 tomato plants, 35 pepper plants, and nine eggplant growing in my driveway right now. And they're all in various states of either distress or thriving. And they've all given me, they're all different varieties, so they've all given me something different. But I know that, but I've lost some of them. And what I've loved is starting from the beginning and planting the seeds and seeing if the seedlings look different, which ones are, which ones are growing like I expect. If I grow 20 saved pepper seeds and two of them come out with purple foliage, then I go, uh-oh, that means a bee crossed a little bit of that pepper with the purple one, purple foliage one growing next. So, but I've got a mysterious hybrid now, so I can play around with that. So then there's this, the mad scientist in me kind of lights up right into transplanting, you know, opening a beer, putting music on in my garage and separating all my little babies out into their individual pots to getting them in the ground and watching them grow, watching the fruit form. So I will lose 10% of my plants, maybe 20%. Tomato spotted wilt will hit or a deer will come and eat something or a plant will just fail to thrive. And it's great to harvest the tomatoes and to eat them and to see what they taste like. But it's that journey in between where I'm burning calories. The the birds are singing. That's my soundtrack. I'm out in the garden four or five hours every day, getting my hands dirty, getting sweaty, reading the plants, learning, learning about what's working and what's not working so I can then pass that on to others. That's the journey part. And, you know, and I know I've got a lot of plants growing. So if I only had room for six and I lost two plants, that's 33% of my crop. I can see why people would be pretty despondent about that. But I think if you can learn something wonderful about every part of the gardening process from seed starting through harvest, then you won't be just totally focused on, well, I didn't get in as many pounds as I wanted, so my garden is a failure to me. You can say, man, I learned a lot, and I tried all of these new things, and I saw all kinds of different things, and I got and diseases hit, but I figured out what went wrong, so next year I can fix it. It's the journey, not the destination. So that, it is the act, the single act of gardening every day, all summer long, that I just absolutely have a passion for. Oh, my gosh. I know my listeners are all going to be like, me too. That's what I love too. <laughs> cool. What's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Whoa, gosh, what a great question. Um, I guess... So here's what's interesting is my my grandfather and my dad taught me to garden when I was very, very young. But for the most part, I just kind of did it on my own. So even though I'm kind of an extrovert and I love people and I'm pretty social, when it comes to a passion like gardening, I like to be an explorer, forge my own way. You know, I, I didn't even read a whole lot of books. So maybe it's my scientific background where I kind of put my logic hat on. If I do this, this is likely to happen. Or if I try this, um, and then I, maybe I'm going to take some advice that came from a different pursuit, which is when I was getting my degree in chemistry. If you're going to change something, only change one thing at a time to see if it's making the difference. Whereas, you know, an example would be, and I haven't done this, but everybody asks about Epsom salts on my plants. So, you know, people will maybe use Epsom salts, but they'll all use fish emulsion, and maybe they'll also use serenade or copper or something else. What I tell people is, if you truly want to find out if Epsom salts makes a difference, take two plants exactly the same variety, put them in the same location, do everything the same except that one plant, apply Epsom salts regularly, and the other one don't, and take good notes. At the end of the year, is the foliage the same color? Is the vigor the same? Is the yield the same? Is the flavor the same? That's how you answer the question of what various things can I do in gardening that make things better? 
Some things make things worse. But if you do four or five or six or seven different things, you can never separate out which one of those factors was the one that made the difference. So maybe that's the best advice is if you're, if you're tinkering, if you're playing, if you're trying to learn something, leave a little space to just try one of those. I call it a controlled study because you're, you're, the plant you're doing nothing to is the control. The one you're adding the Epsom salt is your experiment. Then at the end of the year, you can actually add to the body of knowledge of gardening and be able to tell people when you do your talks or, yeah, I know exactly what addition of Epsom salts does or doesn't do. And it answers that question. Oh, my gosh. So valuable. You can tell. No wonder you have a PhD in organic chemistry. How about a favorite <laughs> tool? If you had to move, what could you not live without? Oh, man. Um, because, you know, if when I was a regular gardener, um, in my dirt before the trees grew, I love that little short handled blade weeder that it's, it's, it looks kind of sharp. It's like a cutting tool and it's, you just scrape it on the ground and it cuts the weeds off. And I used to make quick work of that. Now that I'm a container gardener, I've got a big, big wheeled, big square gardening cart that I'll dump the bags of potting mix in and mix it up with the cow manure and, and wheel it over to my containers and fill them. And at the end of the year, when I'm pulling plants out, I can load it up with a plant. So I just, I need to have something I can fill up with large capacity that I can roll around my yard and transport things from point A to B. So that's probably my favorite thing right now. I hear you. You know, when I first created this question, they asked me, my first thought was a shovel. And then I decided, no way, it's my wheelbarrow. But I've been looking yeah. for a cart like what you're talking about for sure. All right, really quick. I'm just going with one last question. How about what's yeah. your favorite recipe? Oh, favorite recipe. So it varies. Um, see, the thing is with great tomatoes, really, if you just slice them on a plate and put some mozzarella cheese and some fresh basil and some olive oil and some Parmesan, just the classic caprese salad, that allows you to assess, you know, nothing but the tomato. But there's, um, oh, man, there's so many great recipes. Um, one of the ones that's our go-to recipe, and we have this favorite cherry tomato called Sun Gold that you may or may not have heard of. It's a little orange bundle of total tomato bliss and joy. And uh, there was a um, BS cooking show we saw. It was Lydia's Italy, and she made this recipe once, and we tried it. And it's a, it's called a trapanese pesto or trapanese sauce, where you essentially make pesto, but you use um, cherry tomatoes with basil and uh, toasted almonds and garlic and olive oil and the flavor that that creates. So it's, you, it's a cold sauce, like a, like a typical pesto. It's not heated, but you just cook your pasta and put this on. And, you know, some cherry tomatoes are kind of a pale color and it doesn't look like much, but when you put it in your mouth, um, you almost can't stand it. It's so delicious. So that's probably, it would be a, a uh, trapanese pesto or a trapanese sauce, and I, I'm not sure if I have that in my book or not, but uh, one of the things I'm sure you'll, you'll ask me, my email address is just nctomatoman at gmail.com, and one of my favorite parts of every day is you wouldn't believe the wonderful emails I get from people everywhere. Well, I get, I get pictures of diseased foliage and pictures of tomatoes. So I spend about the last hour of every day on the laptop answering all the emails I get that day, doing diagnosis or just saying hello. And it has built this amazing, I feel like it's a network of my tomato friends all over the world that are truly some of my best friends, most of which I'll never meet, but we share this passion of gardening. And if people want any of these recipes or other things we like to do with tomatoes, they can just email me. Oh my goodness. Tell everybody what your website is again. Sure. It's just www.com. CraigLahulier.com, C-R-A-I-G-L-E-H-O-U-L-L-I-E-R.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, NC Tomato Man, Instagram, NC Tomato Man, Twitter, NC Tomato Man. Um, but yeah, I like to kind of be out there and just reachable um, so people can ask what they want. And uh, if they want to pick an argument with me about what's their toma favorite tomato and they differ with mine, I love that too. Nothing like a spirited tomato discussion over whatever medium people like to use. But, um, you know, I'm, my daughter, when, when the book came out, she says, okay, dad, you, you know, if you want to sell some books, you got to have a presence on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And she's right because it, it, 
it gets you out there and it builds a network and it makes you more accessible, but it makes other gardeners more accessible. And, uh, you know, you can teach and all new tricks and I've, I've learned to, I'm not sure I've learned to love to use all of them, but they certainly are all nice tools to use in the toolbox. And I'm happy to use however people want to get in touch with me. I'll roll with it. Okay. So let me just make sure. Like NC, like North Carolina, is that NC yep. Tomato Man? NC Tomato Man. All one Man. word, yep. Okay, and yep. I'm going to encourage everybody, get out there, buy his book, give him a recommendation, because if you didn't get enough out of just this interview that he deserves a, a great recommendation, I don't know where you've been. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and working with my schedule, and just thank you for saving our planet and being just an amazing steward of our earth and just everything that you've done your whole life. We just all appreciate it. And I'm sure listeners will reach out to you and good luck. And if you ever have any questions about podcasting or anything, let me know. Yeah. Well, we're all pieces of the puzzle that are trying to make the world a better place. So uh, thank you for what you're doing as well. And I hope we can keep in touch and do something else again someday. You just have a great day. Oh, thanks. You too, Craig. <laughs> hey, green future growers. Don't forget to get your copy of the 2018 Organic Gardener Podcast Garden Journal and Data Keeper available now at Amazon.com. It's a place to keep track of your organic gardening journey where you can record temperature, weather, recipes, produce that you grew, produce that you bought, and just all your successes and failures and challenges and dreams for the future, all your garden goals. Keep them track of them in one place. 225 pages that will um, go through each week of the year for the 2018 year and just there's blank pages in there where you can sketch or write or do anything that will help you record your journey so don't forget to get a copy of the 2018 garden journal and data keeper uh, available at amazon you can go to the organic gardener podcast.com slash forward slash 2018 for the link Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just organicgardenerpodcast.com. And it will link right to the show notes and all that we've talked about on today's show. Thanks for listening and remember to grow local.